0: Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
1: Uh, hello, and welcome to today's uh, virtual Commonwealth Club program. My name is Reed Hoffman, partner at Greylock, co-founder of LinkedIn, and your moderator for today. As the club continues to host virtual events, they are grateful for the continued support of their members and donors. We hope you will also consider making a donation online or text DONATE to 415-329-4231. It is my great pleasure to introduce Fareed Zakaria, award-winning host of CNN's Fareed Zakaria GPS, columnist for the Washington Post, and author of 10 Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. The COVID-19 pandemic has dramatically changed our world. In his new book, Fareed explores the devastating political, social, technological, and economic consequences of the pandemic and what the future will ultimately hold. Just as a reminder, we will be taking your questions, so please submit those in the chat box. All right, Fareed, let's kick it off. Can I, can you I, can talk-
0: before you, before you start, Reed, can I just thank you for doing this? I don't know if the 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 people who are listening realize how rare it is to get an opportunity to have you do something like this. You are one of the busiest people I know. You are obviously world famous for the stuff you've started. You're also one of the most thoughtful people in the, in the, in the technology world in, in the world. And so, um, this was sort of my dream choice, uh, in terms of like, if there was one person I could get. So I'm so grateful for you doing this. And, um, I think it, it makes it a, a like a unique occasion. So thank you. Thank you.
1: Well, Pleasure and an honor, and as you know, like I'm always like, anytime you call me to go on your show, I say yes because I equally love talking with you. Uh, there's so many different things you open my eyes to, and that's part of the reason why when you called me and said, "Hey, we'll we do this," it was like five seconds, and yep, I can I can make the calendar work. Let's do it. Um, and so let let's start with I think one of the things that your book is a great like I think the the right philosophical way to put it, and then get into some of the details is this kind of stream of American thought that a government should just basically get out of the way, right? Like it's kind of the, it's everything from small government to let private, you know, enterprise do everything. And it's like the this broad government get out of the way. And what happens is there's certain kinds of areas where you suddenly go, Oh, my God, that's a terrible idea, right? And people kind of say, yeah, sure, okay, justice and police, yes, we shouldn't have, the, those should be a collective social or defense against war. But the pandemic is one more of those things with the difference between a F government, a C government, a B government, and A government is huge. So say a little bit about kind of what, um, what, your, what the pandemic has, uh, has brought to mind for what is intelligent government response and what you, you, the kind of thing that, you are, that, that is, is part of driving the reason why everyone should read your book?
0: You know, it's a great, it's a great question. And to me, this is really kind of, in some ways, a, a central, if not the central uh, lesson. Because we get obsessed, and this is, to my mind, a kind of 20th century debate about the size of the government. About how what is this, the percentage of the state is in compared to GDP and things like that, or we get obsessed over moral issues, democracies versus dictatorships. And the interesting thing about about the pandemic was to watch the country's responses, and you saw it didn't really align with those issues. So Singapore, which is technically an authoritarian authoritarian state, does very well. So does South Korea, raucous democracy. So does Taiwan, even more raucous democracy. Uh, so does Vietnam, pretty authoritarian. Uh, Germany, you know, liberal democracy. So what, what the common feature turns out not to be the size of the government, but could you, could you really construct intelligent government policy, which meant, did you have technocrats? Did you have good institutions that were insulated? Were they funded appropriately? Did you have a system in place that allowed government to function easily. So, for example, the Taiwanese told me, the biggest problem, you look at America and you say, because you don't have any kind of universal healthcare system, of any kind, and there are 20 kinds you could have, you don't have any capacity to get centralized data. You have no capacity to figure out what's happening with testing, tracing, any of that. And so what you realize is the governments that did well were the governments that had that capacity Some of them doing it much cheaper than the United States. Some of them doing it more expensively than the United States. And in our case, as you say, we have had this really ever since Reagan, this 40 year assault on the federal government. So Reagan's famous line, you know, the nine most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Well, you know, Steve Bannon comes comes in and he says Trump's goal, the goal of the Trump revolution is to deconstruct the administrative state. Well, it turns out if you have that attitude toward government and you've been defunding the discretionary agencies uh, for 30, 40 years, the same thing happened in, in Britain. It turns out you don't have a very high functioning state. And what the pandemic did do is it required in a kind of real stress test a very high functioning state. The U.S. has parts of the state that are pretty high functioning. The Federal Reserve System, for example, the CDC in general is pretty good. But the whole public health system uh, is is just very, very poor. And I think that what we really need to do is to use this as a wake-up call and say, we failed. A bunch of that is Trump. There's no question in my mind, by the way, and we can get to that. But a bunch of it is this broader failure of having starved government while plying it with increasing mandates and unionized rule structures. So the whole thing... It's almost like a, a you know a collaborative enterprise from left and right to make sure that government can function very well.
1: Yep. And one of the things that I thought was really good in the book is to say, look, it isn't just a question of autocracies, which have that central power worked, because some of those work, some of not And democracies, which don't, don't work, because some of them work and some didn't work just as the cases you were doing. But there are some pressure points that's interesting when you get to democracy. You get this question of, you know, an intelligent response involves, for example, widespread testing, um, uh, contact tracing, uh, you know, a fast moving quarantine, if you get it. And and to some degree that that bureaucratic structure to, to spin that up um, was the thing that it was the differential for better responses and worse responses. And one of the things that I found is really weird when it gets to democracy, especially the American one on political variables. All of a sudden, those become political battles, right? Like it's almost like you get this absurd thing of like, yeah, "It's my right not to wear a mask," and you're like, "Well, wait. <laughs> wait, wait, this is this is a crisis that's like that's that's akin to a war. We've already we've already lost more lives than than the than the the soldiers in the Vietnam War by a, by a large order of magnitude. Wearing a mask is a relatively simple thing. Where does that kind of right so? Where do you think the, the question of, of, of kind of also understanding the shifting footing of government that in these kinds of crises, it, it, it kind of shuffles a little on the kind of civil liberty within yeah. democracy yeah. front?
0: Such a, such a great point. And the best way I can illustrate this is, uh, so I, I talked to the vice president of Taiwan. Taiwan probably handled this better than anyone. 24 million people in Taiwan, seven COVID deaths. And by the way, they're right next to China. They got millions of Chinese tourists, all even during the early part of the pandemic. And why? Well, what he explained is this is what they did. They never had a lockdown in Taiwan. What they did was very early on, they acted early and aggressively, but most importantly, intelligently, exactly along the lines you were describing. So testing, tracing, and then quarantine. And the quarantine was basically mandatory, you know? you had to quarantine yourself for 14 days, you got a phone, they called you three times a day. If you didn't pick up the phone, you had broken the quarantine. In total, they quarantined over the course of of, a few months, 250,000 people. That is 1% of the population. And their argument is we sacrificed the freedom of of, of 1% of the population for 14 days so that the other 99% of the population could go about their lives, the kids could go to school, the economy could keep humming. Taiwan has had the lowest drop in GDP of any country in the world. And it highlights your point perfectly, right? Which is they made a very rational trade-off between a small infringement on liberty temporarily for a small, tiny number of people in return for the general welfare of the whole. I think our problem is we don't even think these things through. We can't even have a rational conversation. So as you said, you know, the issue of, of the mask wearing, first of all, it's not your right to infect other people. Secondly, yes. when other people get infected, we all have to pay for it. So it's a little bit like we're back to that whole seatbelt th- discussion. You know, the, the, the there is a sort of idea of individual liberty at the core of some of the opposition to this that forgets that we are paying collectively for all the healthcare costs associated with all this. And by the way, <laughs> all the healthcare costs associated with the massive Bailouts. I mean, we're going to spend $10 trillion when this is all over, right? And that's yes. all of us paying, so put on yes. your damn mask.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like it, this isn't politics. It's just public health and an ability to get back to work, right? And so, uh, yeah, no, that's, this is uh, some of the things that when I was thinking about, because the next question I'm going to go to is what do you think the tech industry should be doing? You know one of the things that um, I had kicked around, and there's several different versions of the tech industry. There's obviously social media and what's going on with the spreading information. We'll cover that in a moment. but also like uh, I was thinking, well, should we just kind of massively spin up PPE? Should we give everyone like a plastic bubble you know to kind of put on their head? You know um, but I think one of the reasons why the tech industry was in some in, in this factor of slower was because um, like like wanting the moral mandate like you know you're looking for you know this is a federal problem it's a it's a it's a it's a national disaster It needs to be done by the fed the states can't really do it they tried but they can't really do it is there anything that you think the tech industry and in kind of gearing up for the next pandemic should do now and be ready for in the next pandemic
0: you know it's a great question because i thought about that at the start because there is this weird dis, uh, you know kind of uh, disjuncture we've got the best technology in the world. We've got the best tech companies in the world. We invented all the software and the phones that everyone is using. The guy who I talked about, the Taiwan vice president who ran their response, was trained at Johns Hopkins. You know, it's American ideas, American technology. So why are we not able to bring that to bear? And I played around and you and I both are friends with Eric Schmidt and he and I talked a lot about are there ways that you could use the technology to help in the contact tracing, the testing. And I came to the conclusion that while there could be ancillary uh, benefits, the truth is this is uniquely a governmental function. So give you a sense that the, the Singapore guys are the most tech savvy, as you know, uh, in the world. They, they had these contact tracing apps you could use, and then they, they, they would sort of try to look at your phone and figure out where you've been in contact. But the truth is you got to talk to people because the phone can't figure out whether you went to a c- coffee shop and had a cup of coffee, you know, by yourself or alone. Or did you meet a friend? Did you take put your mask on? Did you keep it off? What they found was old-fashioned detective work was, A, the most crucial piece. B, you need the mandate of government. These are not things, even in a Singapore, that you can do by just secretly ferreting out data. Uh, as you know. Th- you know, people now think that phones are just like magical supercomputers that can read your mind, to, to which I always say, then how come how come the ads I keep seeing are for stuff that I bought two weeks ago? Like, they're still not that good, right? I and mean, they're still, you know, getting their way around. But more importantly, this is a governmental function. It's very hard for me to see how, I, I mean, the tech people can, because they're rich and generous, they, they should obviously step up to the plate in those ways. But what you're asking is, is the technology going to be helpful. And I think that there are places where it can be helpful. But the core issue is, do we have a national will? And does the federal government have the energy and the determination to do this? And let me give you an example of what I mean by this. The president of the United States gets COVID in a super spreader event, which is exactly the kind of event that produces COVID spread. As you know, this is not uniformly distributed. What happens is one person gets it And then there's a cluster. And the key, if you follow the Taiwan example, is you get that cluster and you isolate them. So you look at all the people who got COVID at that super spreader event that Amy Coney Barrett was nominated at. And you look at what the media has asked a number of those people, like Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, has anyone called you to do contact tracing? And the answer for every single person who has been asked and has answered the question was no. And this is the most high-profile cluster event that has taken place in the United States involving the president of the United States. Nobody has done contact tracing. So if, if we can't do that, you could have the best technology and software in the world. It is going to change. You know, that's the pro- the, Our problem is, is that we're not willing to ask that question and to do that process. We could probably make the process great, but we can't change the fact that the federal government isn't answer, asking the question.
1: Completely, and actually, one of the questions that's actually already come up from the chat was actually what I was going to ask you next. So I'm going to like the the I'm going to ask it, but it's also for um, thank you from the from the chat, which is part of the thing that we've run into here, is that uh, science and expert opinion has become politicized, right? That we're we're in this like like don't trust the experts, don't trust the scientists. You know, it's, you know, my gut tells me, like, I th- I have a good feeling about this. The disease is going to pass in a month, you know, that kind of stuff. Obviously, this is just disastrously retrograde relative to pandemics. What, how do we as a country get back to appropriately appreciating expertise and appropriately appreciating science?
0: So, as you know, that I've got a whole chapter on, in the book on this because I'm so worried about it. Look, part of the answer is, we need to make people understand how science works because otherwise you get these absurd things that, frankly, the president keeps saying. Fauci said masks were bad. Now he's saying they're good. They, they, they didn't say that. You know, they were trying to figure out what to do when there's limited supply. They weren't sure whether they prevent self-infection. And what Fauci said was, look, as we got better data and better studies, I changed my mind. You know, you're first about the lethality of the disease. That's how science works. There is isn't no gee whiz answer that you have. Science is a mode of inquiry where you ask questions, you look at evidence, you gain, you know. So 35 years ago, there was a small percentage of atmospheric scientists who believed that global warming was real and man-made. Now it's like 99.9%. The reason is they've done studies, they've posed hypotheses, the data has confirmed the hypotheses, and that's how it works. But there is a larger issue. And we, I think, people like us, have to be honest about this, there is a great class resentment out there in the country against people like us, you know, highly educated, credentialed, who live in cities, who, who do well economically. And there's a feeling that we are sort of telling everybody else how to live their lives. Mm-hmm. And I think we have not been sensitive enough to that issue. I mean, that's frankly why Hillary Clinton isn't president of the United States. I think class resentment is at the heart of so much of this phenomenon of populism. And so what we have got to figure out is how do you, how do you convey this stuff without doing it in a patronizing manner, without doing it in a way that suggests that, that people out there are deplorables or, you know, are, are, there's, there's something lesser about them. And I do think that that's, you know, and it's a, it's a larger question I have read. I'm not sure how one answers it, but, uh, I, the, the week after Trump was elected, I got a uh, an e- email. I think it was uh, from somebody who was who'd been reading my writing, and he said, "You know, I live in the rural uh, areas, and I didn't vote for Trump. But let me tell you what life looks like for people like me. Every television show I see is set in New York or San Francisco or Chicago. Every movie I see is set in one of those cities. Every TV show is set in Washington D.C. or every song." comes out of an urban experience. Everything that is idolized in my life and celebrated comes from cities. It's like we don't exist. It's like our world doesn't exist, you know? So I think part of the challenge here is what do we do uh, because our political divide has gotten layered onto a cultural divide, a class divide, an education divide, an urban rural divide, and this is one I don't have a good answer for because it's one of the reasons it's so hard to compromise. You know, when, when Nancy Pelosi is asked, why are you not compromising with the, with the Republicans? What she can't say is, look, my base regards it as an act of betrayal to, to, to do any deal with them because the, the act of doing a deal, you're, you're doing a deal with the devil. And by the way, they feel exactly the same way, you know? And so it yes. becomes very hard to find a way, even on money, as you know, read money is the easiest thing to compromise on. Very hard to compromise on abortion, gay rights. Money, you want to spend two and a half trillion, I want to spend one and a half trillion. There's a number in the middle, and even that proved difficult because of this class divide.
1: Yeah, and by the way, part of it's obviously Pelosi, but also part of it's you know Trump insisting that he wants his signature on it to, to to use the articles of state to get him reelected, which is right. counter democratic values, you know, small D American democracy values. And so, so that's again, but it, but it is a melee. Now I do think that one of the things that we, if we can't figure out how to, how, like, you go back to Reagan and tip O'Neill and they go, look, here are the things we agree on, let's, let's work and build on things we ground. We really need to go back to, it's not complete war that every, like we're only focusing on the disagreements. Right, you have right. to get that agreement and hopefully science and expertise applied can be the, can be the right thing. Um, you, sorry, you look like you're about to say something.
0: Yeah, because I thought it was a very good example. I think part of the problem we had is that our political parties used to be more diverse. You know, so you had within the parties, liberals and conservatives. I mean, you would think about the Democratic Party in the 50s, right? It was an alliance between northern liberals and southern segregationists. And so you had to find some way to make these compromises and make these deals. So it, didn't, it wasn't that hard to make them on the, on the other side. Now our parties are pure. You know, they're ideologically more pure, which in a way gives the public a good choice. In, in that sense, it's good. But it's turned out to be very difficult for, comp, for, for governing because the American system is not like a European parliamentary system. It actually depends on a kind of constant compromise among the three branches of government. And if you have a situation like we have now, as you say, that each side is looking at it and saying, if I give this win to them, I lose. And it's very hard to get, figure out how you get past that. The obvious rational answer is what you said, which is find the areas where you agree, just pass that and agree to disagree on the stuff you disagree with, you know, but somehow we're not able to get there.
1: Well, it's because it's too much open warfare. Um, And, you know, like, I don't mean warfare is actually hopefully never like real disturbance, but like, just like we're enemies and there's nothing we agree on. And that's that like, to some degree, both sides have to go, we have to put down those verbal weapons. We have to agree to that. Um, And that true, you know, kind of trust, truth and reconciliation process, it takes leadership. Um, so, you know, obviously (laughs) we hope we get some, um, (laughs) we're working on it. Um, and so the, um, Anyway, so so let's move to another part of the science side because the Taiwan example which you know is 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 like literally the as I agree the shining example of if you did this everyone's lives would be a lot better the debt the loss of millions of jobs the 200 plus 1000 lives you know all of that would have been much much lower. You know, you got this other Swedish experiment, you know, that's kind of playing in like herd immunity and that kind of stuff. What's your reflection on the, on the Swedish experiment? Was it, is it, is it kind of like stick your head in the sand or was there smart things about it? Is herd immunity a reasonable play?
0: Yeah, I think it, I think it's, it's, it's gotten a bum rap in this sense. They were trying to do some things right, which is they were trying to play with the fact that this is a, this is a disease that affects people very differentially based on age and prior health conditions. So that if you're not old and if you don't have a prior history of medical issues, you have much different uh, uh, vulnerabilities. Not zero, by the way. I mean, it's still a bad disease. You do not want to get this. This is not the flu. And I don't want anyone to think that that's the argument I'm making. But I'm saying what they were trying to do is say, okay, so we're, you know maybe we have some stronger restrictions for people who are older and weaker restrictions. So their school system, they actually have handled pretty well because of that. They were able to understand that very young kids, really, there's, there's very low, low rates of transmission. uh, And they're, you know, by and large, you can have kindergarten, you know, up through 12 year olds, go to school, no problem. The problem they have is twofold. One, they implemented it very badly. They did not really sequester the old properly. They, they botched the nursing, nursing homes, kind of in the same way that New York state botched the nursing homes. They let them all be together, so the clusters became mega clusters, and that has actually affected their mortality, morbidity numbers very badly. And if you take if you take four big nursing homes out of out of the Swedish numbers, they look much better. Um, mm. But the second is, you still have to put guidelines in place. You know, this is still a easily transmissible play. So I think the Swedes had done everything they had done, lo- done better on the nursing homes, and just done the normal common sense: masks, no big gatherings. And they did them, but they did them without enforcement mechanisms. So, you know, it was like the right idea, the basic idea that there is a differential uh, of risk for young people versus old people, uh, for people with prior conditions, was the right one. They implemented it badly, and now they're reaping the, 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 many of the consequences of that. You know? But all that said, Reed, we, people forget, Sweden's morbid, morbidity rate per capita is the same as Italy's. It's a little lower than France's, a little higher than France's. So it's not that you know, it's not like so outlandish. Now their problem was what they didn't understand is in a highly globalized, interdependent economy that Europe is, their economy took the same hit that everybody else did because if if none of your neighbors are economically open, the fact that you're open doesn't give you much of a boost.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. It's well, this is because that's another of the chapters, which is the fact that. You know, people are tend to because of populism, because of the 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 class resentment, uh, and then because of the pandemic, they tend to go, "Oh, is globalization over?" Yeah. That's another chapter in the book. So, why don't you um, kind of share a little bit about kind of where do you think the future of globalization is, and why globalization is not over?
0: Sure. Yeah, this is I think the co- most common thing I've heard from you know journalists and politicians. Oh, you know, we're we're done with globalization. We're in an age of deglobalization. The era of globalization is over, and the problem is, if you look, I mean, as you know this, read because you live it. When you actually operate big companies in the world these days, um, you can't operate. Uh, you know, you're, uh, no no company can be an island. No no country can be an island. Uh, all of them rely on incredible interdependence of investment of finance off manufacturing, off sales, you know, so if you look at the, and you can see it at every level, you know, I was reading an article about restaurants in Paris and, and Tokyo, which are now shutting down because they all relied on tourists for their, you know, for the, for where, where they got people. It turns out that the great classical French bistros, the only people who go there are, are Americans, you know, <laughs> if you want to see where the French well, are, go to, go to a McDonald's, exactly. You know, um, and my guess is that's very true. The best sushi places in in Japan may well be, it turned out, you know, maybe people from China who are going there or something. So, and if you can, the data shows this very clearly. If you look at the data for globalization and there's a good, the Peterson Institute has a good metric, exports plus imports as a percentage of GDP. And it goes like this from 1945, you know, straight up. And then there's been a modest, you know, like it's like seven steps up, one step backward. So there's definitely a phase of deglobalization. Some of it is actually people feeling too vulnerable to China, which I think is a very important distinction to make. So if you want to make sure that you are not as dependent on China for strategic reasons, which I think are perfectly understandable, you might move your manufacturing or parts of your manufacturing or parts of your technology supply chain to Mm -hmm. Poland or to Mexico or to South Korea. That's not deglobalization. That's still a global economy. You're just choosing to rearrange it. And partly people are doing it in any case for labor costs, for other kinds of reasons. So I think that the reality of globalization is this. We're gonna see some rhetoric around it. We're gonna have modest efforts at it. People are gonna say, oh, we need to make PPE at home. But they, hmm. of course, nobody thinks about the fact, what is PPE? You're talking about cotton swabs. You're talking about, you know, masks. These are consumer items. And are you really saying that you want, the, you want to start up and fund industries in the United States to make what are the equivalent of T-shirts? Uh, I, I propose in the book, you know, a much simpler solution. The government should just stockpile medical reserves. We, all we need is for a couple of months. After that, we've been able to manufacture everything. The, the private sector in, in, in America and in every country has responded immediately. There's usually a one or two month shortage because everyone's trying to get the same thing. As long as you do that, you're going to be fine. Uh, a lot of the re- on sourcing will be money wasted. I mean, we, we, we're and we're going to fight the last war because the next crisis might turn out to be something where you need something completely different. I mean, I actually worry a lot about factory farms, as you know, with the the, the kind of uh, diseases that come out of it. I worry a lot about forest fires. I think that this is one that is staring us in the face. We have, you know, we have burned in the West. I mean, this is. you're living this, we've burned 5 million acres of land. That is the state of Massachusetts has gone up in smoke. And, you know, five of the worst forest fires in California all have taken place in the last three years. So we know this is coming. So now the question is the government is going, we're going to be short of a whole bunch of stuff for the next 10 years on fire. Does Does it mean America should manufacture all of this stuff at home? No, it means we need to think smart, figure out where there will be shortages, stockpile those things for the when there are emergencies and, and, you know, keep going. But part of what happens here, I think, Reid, is it's very easy to blame other people for your problems. And, you know, and Trump has turned this into an art form. If, mm-hmm. if you think about Donald Trump's 2016 campaign, I mean, if you listen to that one hour, one and a half hours of campaign talk in these town halls, the message was very simple. The Chinese have taken your factories, the Mexicans have taken your jobs and the Muslims are trying to kill you. <laughs> you know, it was just, it, it was blame, blame, blame. So we, we, we're in some sense hardwired to look out out there, but the, that's not the answer. The answer is we've got to actually do more global cooperation to get this right. Uh, we need a stronger yeah. WHO so that it can go into the Chinese and demand information. But by the way, that means they got to be able to go into the United States and demand information. Yes. We have to be willing to play by the rules if we want there to be rules for other people. And that's one of the hypocrisies I talk about in the book, where we are not going to be able to run this world by saying, you guys have to all follow the International Criminal Court, but we don't have to. You guys have to follow the international law of the sea, but we don't, get it. We don't have to, because we're the United States. That kind of American exceptionalism is over. And so if we want a true globalization which is a little bit more democratic, a little bit more um, multipolar in a sense, you know, we can get it, but we we would have to play by the rules too.
1: Well, the the, the thing I know that you agree with is, look, globalization is good, but we need to bring the country along. We need to make sure that uh, that the the benefit of globalization is isn't only hoarded by those of us who are in cities and everything else, but is actually kind of more distributed. And that will one of the things that could help with that resentment. And then obviously in the pandemic, it's the classic definition of of we have a shared health. We can't say, well, we go our own way because we go our own way in a in a good example. This was SARS. Oh my God! Would this be like greatest catastrophe in human in human history? Um, so we were fortunate that it was it had you know real you not a flu, which is very serious, but much less than it could have been, and that's part of the reason why I think your book is so important because like look, like as a as a dry run of something serious, pay attention now. Um, so so let's turn a little bit to I, some just, other things I, just want to,
0: come to I want to reinforce the point you were making so that everybody understands mm-hmm. the morbidity rate in SARS was about 10 times that of COVID in other words you're 10 times more likely to die but it's equally transmissible and so um if that's the that's the the thing you're describing that you're worried about and you're absolutely right to worry about it uh, the, the the real scare is a a covid like pandemic but with a SARS like f- uh, fatality rate
1: yes exactly and it's Completely possible. We we've yeah. seen it with SARS, and so it's completely possible. So it's like, wake up, be ready for the next pandemic. And these this is not just a political thing. This is a you know protect your your loved ones' lives, your children's lives, your community lives. This, that's that's how urgent this issue is. So and and um, it gets to the
0: issue that you were saying, which is we all have to be protected. You know the the problem yes. with this stuff and the mass wearing is like. You know, you, you're, you're seeing this now with these spikes in the Midwest. This is going, this is not going to end well because we are not, you know, we don't have internal borders in this country. People from the Midwest are going to go to the Northeast. They're going to go to the South. They're going to go to the West. And unless we want to put in place strong internal borders and have, you know, deep enforcement of those, you you, you, need, to, you need to think we're all in this together. You know, and then none of us are safe if everyone isn't safe. And somehow we haven't been able in this in these times to make those common appeals of exactly yes. the kind you're you're making, Reed.
1: not exactly. Um, and there, there was actually one of the questions in the chat as on values on that, which we'll come back to. Um, I, I first wanted to make sure that we covered a couple other key things in your book, so that people know, uh, you know, kind of what what are the things that they, they, why they should rush to Amazon or the kind of equivalent, <laughs> equivalent for it. Um, so its life is now digital life, right? We, we, we have now been accelerated into, like, living through this exact event we're doing today, because if, yeah, if yeah. it wasn't pandemic, we would be sitting in a room together with a whole bunch of people. Um, what parts of this shift of digital life and digital work do you think are temporary, and which parts are persistent?
0: It's a great question. So I think that the first thing to say is, it is astonishing how resilient the technology that we have, that people like you have invented, over the last twenty-five years, has turned out to be. I mean, what a stress test, right? You suddenly said, instead of spending one hour on my, you know, on my computer uh, using broadband uh, and video, which as you know is the biggest broadband hog, I'm going to spend twelve hours doing it, and everybody is going to spend 12, twelve hours doing it. And the system hasn't crashed, and you know you have had an extraordinary ability to literally take the American economy and really the Western economy and the Chinese economy and the Japanese and lift it and put it onto a digital platform and an, an astonishing amount of it has been able to work and so I think first one has to say, boy, I mean this they, they like you suddenly realize the power of this technology and the capacity it has. Hmm. I think that What we have realized is that we can really do almost anything online. It doesn't mean we will, and it doesn't mean we should, but that we can, that the capacity exists. And so you're going to start, I think, have this great sort of what's going to go online, what's going to stay. My guess is something like telemedicine is a no brainer. You know, people will go into their doctor's offices because they, they, you know, they had a headache. And they would go and wait for two hours and the doctor would say, take an aspirin and come back, you know, call me if you have any problems. You can do that in 10 minutes online. And by the way, the technology existed. The problem was human beings. It was a human obstacle and COVID eliminated that. It, it got the people to be willing to go and it got the doctors willing to, to, to listen because they were getting paid. That, so those two obstacles got through. I would suspect that what we're going to end up with is kind of hybrid in almost every area. Nothing will go completely digital, I don't think. I think that what you will end up with is, like, think of work. I, I tend to think, you know, we work failed, but the we work model might succeed, by which I mean people might realize, you know what, you don't need to be in the office seven six days a week or five days a week. You do need to go two or three days because you've got meetings, you've got, there's a, there's a bunch of things for which you need to be there. Maybe you don't need a dedicated office because now that you have everything of your life is on the cloud, you really need a portal into which you can plug. And that can be a rotating one, and that means you use much space much more efficiently. So that's why I say we work may have failed, but the we work model might succeed. You might end up in a situation where some people uh, are spending more time at home some at work. To me, this actually resembles in an odd way a throwback to a pre-industrial era. You know, because the the way we work is very much a kind of 19th-century factory model, which is you leave your home in this sort of madman-like world and, and you leave the suburbs, you go to work. Everybody at work knows you, but they know nothing about your home life. At home, everybody knows your home life. Nobody knows anything about your work life. But if you go back before that to the 18th century, you know, a, a farmer lived on his farm and worked on his farm. A craftsman had had his store and his tools at the back of the, the, the house. The The shopkeeper lived above the store. The lawyer often hung his shingle on the... And, you know, as a result, your your, your family, your friends, your co- co-workers, life was a lot more mixed and muddled up. And maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe this weird demarcation where you, you know, you go to the office and you, you know, get you get drunk on martinis at lunch and then you come home and you're the perfect husband. Like we, we, maybe the, your children will see the real you and your workers will see, you know, your colleagues will see the real you. So I tend to think it's going to be like that. The one final point I'll make is, The one thing I don't think we've solved, and I'd like to know your thoughts about this. I don't think we have figured out a way to build social capital on technologies like Zoom. We spend social capital on it. So you and I can do this in large part. And I think if I may say so, it's been like this a really fun conversation because we already know each other. We trust each other. We we respect each other. I I see this with my teams working, Um, bringing new people in, Building that trust, that's all very hard. You, you're spending down what you have. But the bill, you know, I, 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 one of my team people said to me, you know, when you send a harsh email now saying you don't like the work, it has a different quality than when we were at work. Because we would see you and you'd, we'd have had 10 pleasant conversations with you. And we'd have kid around and we, and you know, your your tough email was in the context of that. But if all I get from you, the only contact I have with you that week is that one email, it ruins my week, right? And so that's a perfect yeah. example where I haven't built the social capital to spend it. And so, you know, I'm just taking out of the bank. That's something it feels to me like you need actual human contact for.
1: I think you're hundred percent right. Um, social capital is important for all kinds of things. It's uh, uh, dealing with difficult topics uh, is, is a classic one. Innovation is another one a trust to invest in who, like it's the promotion or who leads the team or who's leading an effort. All of those things require social capital. And I've been thinking about it. I actually don't think there is. I don't know. If, obviously, there's probably some technologists who think like virtual worlds or something else would be able to do it. Um, and certainly, you know, you get some of it in like a shared gameplay. Like when people do the like multi, massive multiplayer online, they get some in that because they mm-hmm. they share a bunch of those experiences doing it. But I actually think that if you were, if we were going to be caught in this for years, um, then we'd probably have to hack it almost like Dale Carnegie style, get much more explicit about building social capital and so forth. It's yes. like, hey, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna spend time deliberately doing that, um, which is awkward, right? I mean, it's it's one of the things that we 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 learn to build social capital by being natural with each other versus. So, me, tell me about your last, you know, last vacation. Did you have a good time? Where did you, you know, like it's like ah, <laughs> right? we we we'd rather have that 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 pleasant in texture. And so, I think that's part of the reason why you're seeing like, you know, uh, at least in California, but a bunch of other places, like people going, oh, I'm going out to dinner at restaurants and so on, because I I I desperately need that social capital. I desperately need that connectivity. Um, and it's like, well, okay, that's I, I get it. You need it, <laughs> right? but let's be disease intelligent. Um, I'm going to start weaving in some of the questions uh, from the chat in the audience. And so people know that it's a live channel. So if you have them, bring them. One of the questions we got very early, and I think it's actually um, a great channel for you, given your global perspective, was that was some of the difference an ideals uh, comparison, like a, a values comparison between East and West, right? East, the collective good, West, the individual good. Is that also one of the thing that's present in intelligent versus uh, clumsy or dumb uh, responses to the pandemic?
0: Yeah, it's a great question, and I do think I think there's some truth to it. I would not overplay it, and I say this as somebody who grew up in India. You know, it's the the East is not full of people who are like oh so self-effacing, and we just want the collective, as you well know, Reid, having gone there and dealt with businessmen, they're, they're every bit as individualistic, rapacious, competitive, individualistic, you know, but, but it is true that they do not have, they, they have not had this tradition, particularly that you have had in the Anglo-American world, in the Anglo-Saxon world, of liberty being produced from a struggle with the state, the sort of anti-statist mm-hmm. tradition that America, Britain, you know, to a certain extent, Northern Europe has, uh, that is not as strong in those countries, so they're able to. You know, they're probably susceptible to a certain degree of authoritarianism, but they're also able to construct rational policy and to make rational trade-offs of the kind I described with Taiwan. You know, we take a little bit of your freedom in return for a large kind of public welfare. But you know, so I think that there is some truth to that to that values conversation, but I do think that it's a bit of a cop out because. Look, if you look at the countries that we're talking about, Taiwan, South Korea, Singapore, 40 years ago these were corrupt kleptocracies that were run by authoritarian strongmen. They were these were not models of good government in any way. They, these were societies that people thought would never become advanced industrial societies because they had, you know, bad values and they were they were they they, they didn't understand capitalism. All kinds. I mean, Max Weber famously said that the Confucian ethic was antithetical to capitalism. Part of this is they learned, you know, they, had, they, were, they were flat on the ground and they said to themselves, how do we do this smart? How do we do better? There's a great book by Mansur Olson uh, who, who wrote a book about why Germany did so much better in the 50s, 60s than Britain did. And his point was that Germany had been defeated in the war, had the humility to say, we've got to rebuild. And we've got to make functioning institutions the british having won uh felt like everything that they did was blessed you know kind of british exceptionalism and i think there's a lot of truth to that as much as there is so i don't want to minimize there is some some point of the values but there's also something going on here where we become smug and arrogant and it's not you know look at who's done badly here the united states britain brazil another country that believes god is Brazilian. You know, it's these kind of when the places that have done well, to your point, uh, many of them did badly in SARS and they revamped their their healthcare systems. They learned from it. They were like, oh, my God, we've got to make sure that we don't. So we should be looking at this and saying this is our SARS. We screwed this up big time. What should we do? What you know, we need to have, you know, a a 9-11 type commission that says, what did we get wrong and what do we need to fix?
1: Yeah. Well, and actually this goes back to one of the things that when I was um, kind of gesturing what the technology industry can do is I actually think that we need to have a technology strategy and a few and afford on this and obviously contact tracing is one. And I agree with you about stockpiling PPE, but we don't necessarily know what we'll need. So for example, we need to build manufacturing that's very manuf- re- retoolable, whether it's robots and AI or something else, but something where you go, okay, look, this is flexible manufacturing, maybe a little bit less yeah. cost efficient but can turn when we need it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And because, like, for example, one of the things that I learned from this pandemic that I didn't know is, well, suddenly everyone starts going every every person for themselves. You say, well, we need more test kits. Well, only after we've done our test kits. And you're like, well, if you don't have a manufacturing capability for that, you're hosed, right? So you need to make sure that, and, you know, I started uh, funding and, and, and kind of getting, like, I think the Broad Institute is accounting for, one 14th of the testing in the US, right? So it wow. pivoted in order to do yep. this, which is super important. And on one hand, it's, it's an impressive certification of the Broad. On the other hand, it's a disaster for our country because it's like, like, it's just one institution. You're like It should never be that, for, Like it, we should have so much testing going on that it was not there. And so that kind of technology forward strategy and how we get to it through some combination of intelligent federal government an industry is, I think, going to be really key.
0: Oh, I totally agree. And I think that, you you know, look, you hit on exactly the right points. It seems to me the testing part, the tracing part, or this, this, the time between the, the test and the results, as you know, is crucial. And we've done particularly badly at that. In all those areas, you could imagine us being able to speed up. And then you're right, and I haven't thought enough about it, but you're absolutely right. Highly flexible manufacturing. So that Because there are going to be things, as you say, you never know what you need, but the kind of pop-up manufacturing that that particularly 3D printing will allow in the future and things like that. Um, But, you know, you need the government driving it. You know what I mean? I think that the the, – I I noticed you guys, so so many of the people I know in the tech industry have all sort of gone petitioning, we want the help. Let us help. (laughs) And, And, I mean, there was a great article in The Times two days ago that pointed out, that the federal government does not want to ramp up testing because it believes a that if you ramp up testing, people will get more scared because there'll be more incidents of COVID. They'll think it's bad. That it's better to actually minimize it. Two, you'll admit that you were, you were doing it wrong. You know, if you if you if you if you, t- if you turn policy now, it's an admission of failure. And Trump has said, "I want everyone to say we are doing a great job," which means we're not changing anything. And third, that his so- so-called COVID advisor Scott Atlas believes that you can get herd immunity at 20 to 30%. So you just infect the younger parts of the population. So it's like you're dealing with something so bizarre and dysfunctional that I don't think all, the best technology in the world can solve that.
1: A hundred percent. And the other thing, let's just make sure, I mean, I think we have an unusually you know, Commonwealth club, way. I think we have a smart uh, audience here. But like herd immunity doesn't mean now everyone's immune. It just cuts the R not down because a certain set of people will no longer be transmitting. Doesn't mean you can't catch it, (laughs) right?
0: And and generally herd immunity is achieved, basically herd immunity is achieved through vaccination. So to give you an example where we know how to do it and we've done it well, measles, you have to vaccinate 95% of the population to get the herd immunity for that other 5%. There is no case that I know of in history where 20% of the population you know, gets, and by, and by the way, if 20, 25% of the population gets it, lots of people are gonna die.
1: <laughs> yes, no, no, exactly. So um, so let's look a little, one of the questions from the audience is looking six to 12 months ahead. I think uh, vaccine, testing, you know, uh, you, you're, in a, you're in one of the expert nodes of a lot of the, 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 the most cutting edge information. Let's, what does that lens ahead look like for the pandemic? Especially in the U.S.,
0: so there's, there is a, there is an optimistic scenario here, which is which has a non-trivial likelihood of being true, which is that the first half of this pandemic, or the you know first phase that we've gone through, has been the phase where you needed public health to work really well, uh, not healthcare. We have we have very good heroic healthcare for rich people, but public health for everyone, and that we've done disastrously. The second phase of this. Is likely to be the therapeutics and vaccine phase where we'll be pretty good because that's fundamentally a private sector driven enterprise, not a public sector-driven enterprise. And in those areas, all the federal government has to do is to write checks. And there, by the way, Trump has done a reasonably good job. The operation warp speed and things like that. The, the federal government has done the right thing in, in, in front-loading a lot of those payments. So I have a there's a there's a distinct possibility that what you're going to end up with is very good therapeutics and very good vaccines that come out of this. Mm-hmm. Most of the vaccines are going ahead of schedule. Uh, one or two of them, as you know, have had a few issues with their th- phase three trials, which, by the way, often happens in phase three trials. A pause in those trials does not mean things are going wrong. It is absolutely appropriate that if something happens, you stop, you wait and make sure that the, nobody's getting harmed. But all that said, they all look like they're on, on track Uh, And I think everyone is being cautious, but I think you are likely to see something. I think by December, we will begin to see the outlines of what a vaccine strategy looks like. Now, I think it's very important to point out, you still have to do it. There are still execution issues involved and there are still political issues involved. 50% of Americans, according to polls, say they will not get vaccinated. There is very few medical experts who believe you will get to herd immunity if 50% of the population does not get vaccinated. So we may have a we, we may be in the bizarre situation where we have the best technology in the world, um, we have the best vaccine in the world, but we will have the lowest effect of that vaccine because 80% of Germans will take it, but if 50% of Americans take it, that is a problem.
1: Yeah, no, completely. And that goes back to the, that's the reason we started with the science comment because it's like, understand vaccines. And by the way, like if you, if you kind of look at the history of it, like part of the reason why we got the flu vaccines and being very determined that everyone does the flu vaccines is, you know, you look at 1918, you look at like some of these earlier pandemics were really disastrous with the flu. And it was like, okay, this is really important that we do vaccines. And, and COVID is obviously the, the same, um, the same, the same kind of challenge for us with Potentially much worse if you get to SARS. Um, do you think one of the questions that we've, we've got from the chat is, do you think that um, this is going to affect because it suddenly put all of the first responders, the nurses and doctors on the front line, made, put them in the line of fire? Because if, if we as a populace are not taking the vaccine, et cetera, we continue to endanger them as well. Who are trying to do that. Do you think this is going to quell at all the kind of people's desire to go into those fields?
0: No. I I mean, I actually think that, you know, for those of us who know people um, who've done this kind of thing, a lot of them do it because they like helping people. They like that physical, tangible feeling. Uh, There's an enormous amount of reward that comes from that. You know, the the one thing I hope that comes out of this is that two things happen. One, that we realize, you know, there are a lot of ways to live a fulfilled life. There are a lot of different things that give people fulfillment. And you really should go to where you you get fulfillment. For some people, it's being a school teacher. For some people, it's being a fireman. For some, and for some people, it's being a businessman. For some, I think we have overly venerated one set of industries and one set of w- ways of thinking about life, largely business and monetary. And I think, look, it's amazing, it's transformational, it produces incredible innovation, but not everyone can do it, and not everyone derives enormous joy from it. And I think if one thing that this makes one reminds one, you know, there's like an ability of work in everything. Um, and if you do it well and you do it honestly and you do it with dignity, I, I think the society should reward it more. You should be more proud of yourself for doing it. You know, we, we, we're we sort of, we've gotten too caught up in the idea that, you know, and this part of this is the celebrity culture where everybody is looking at, you know, on Instagram and everybody's looking at everybody else's houses and things like that. And they're not asking themselves like, you know, how much can I really enjoy this? I mean, there's a, you know, I think Warren Buffett is particularly weird, but I don't think it's so busy, you know, to understand him when he says, you know, he's lived in the same house he's lived in for 45 years, because he hates the idea of moving more than he loves the idea of having a bigger living room, you know? And it's like, there's some truths to that, that you actually, you know, I mean, you know, this much better than I do, you don't get that much happier when you get that much richer. I mean, you get some opportunities, but so if we could somehow get a little bit more of a balance for everybody, and I think this is this is something we all need to think about, like what's really important in life? You know, at the end of the day, I find that you realize it's your close friends, it's your family, it's those bonds you've made. That's what you're going to be left with. You know, all the other stuff, it goes, you know,
1: it, it, yeah. it, you can't take it with you. Yeah, well, it's a really important you know, point to remember because it's it's the people that you love and the people that 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 you are you are in community with. It's one of the reasons why like, one of my favorite uh, words is Ubuntu because you know I am because we are right. as part of that kind of meaning of life and it's like it, it's, it's 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 very important. So, um, so what do you think uh, is going to be the 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 necessary changes in the global world order? Like one of the things that that you know, you're one of the, the experts on is kind of how the globe comes together. Should there be accountability or consequences for countries or whatever for mishandling pandemics, for not responding early, not sharing information? Does this need to be a new kind of like world treaty?
0: You know, I mean, in a sense, what you're centrally asking is how do we create a global system in which you have some countries that really just don't play by the rules. You know, and as I said, I think one of the things the United States needs to get better at is we need to play by the rules more. But basically, you know, we're we're, we're pretty good in the sense that we've set up the system, we by and large uh, abide by it, we put rules in place that make sense for everyone. Unusual for the United States, we didn't try to press our advantage when we won World War II, we tried to help create a, a stable system. And the two big countries that are out of whack right now are Russia and China. Um, Russia is more of a spoiler than China, but China is much more important because it's much bigger and much more powerful. So how we handle these two countries is going to determine the answer to your question. Because everybody else, to be honest, if you can get the rules put in place and if the United States and Europe uh, and China were to agree, uh, the the other countries will go along. But how do you get China to go along? How do you get Russia to go along? Um, I think that our you know Russia is going to be a problem because it is a spoiler state it It derives its importance, its benefit its power even from the fact that it, that it can play the spoiling role otherwise it's a you know it's a third third rate economic power its the economy is the size of the Netherlands and declining every year its population is declining every year. it has the nuclear weapons, the veto at the u n you know, that the massive expanse. And by the way, because it's an oil power, global instability actually helps Russia. Every time there's global instability, the price of oil goes up, which means Russian coffers go up, which means Mr. Putin's net worth goes up. Yes. China, I think, is the, is the real complicated one because I think if we can have a sophisticated policy toward China that has elements of pushback, deterrence, um, which we absolutely need, because the Chinese are, you know, I mean, like, and I don't need a particularly, I don't mean this in a in a, uh, racially way, but the Chinese understand power. By the way, so do we, so do most countries. You, you recognize hard power and you recognize, you know, what you can and cannot do. So there has to be an element of our strategy with China that says, you know, th- there are there are rules that you have broken, and we I, for one, think that we made a mistake of not holding China accountable more for banning all the technology companies, uh, you know, in China. I mean, as you know, American tech companies have basically no access to China, and we kind of accepted it. And yet, you know, they are, we let them into the WTO, and we, you know, and, and all that was done legitimately. They made the concessions they had to make. But then they added this one on and, you know, we we should in retrospect be thinking much more about these kinds of issues before they come up. Um, Right now, I think our challenge is, how do we have a, a policy with China that is a mixture of deterrence, competition, and cooperation? Because if you want to solve global warming, you are not going to do it without cooperation with the Chinese. If you want to have some rules of the road for cyber, Make sure you do not have a world of cyber attacks and cyber warfare. You need to have some, some kind of negotiation with China. A space race. You know, there are a lot of very bad outcomes you could end up with if the two most dynamic economies in the world just go at each other the way the United States and the Soviet Union did. So what you really need is a strategy that is thought through, that tries to mix these two. And here I actually think, in many ways, the biggest difference, I think, and I hope between Trump and Biden will be this. Uh, mm. I don't really know where Biden will go, but the guy, he's a serious guy. He has serious people around him. They understand the nature of these, these, these trade-offs. Mm. With Trump, the whole thing is an exercise in narcissism. You know, yeah. when he thought he was going to get a deal with China, he praised Xi Jinping while the Chinese were lying that, through their teeth about COVID when the minute he realized that COVID was going badly for him and he needed to deflect the blame, China became the great evil empire, the monster. This is not a serious policy toward China for the, for the world's biggest economy. We need a serious policy. And if we can get... So I guess my bottom line to you, uh, readers, is if I had to wave one magic wand, it would be we got to get the policy toward China right. we got to deter them. we got to rein them in where we need to. And we got to find a way to cooperate. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hours and hours of the kind of boring diplomatic legwork that Trump, you know, disdains. But that's what you need. You know, that's what you need. That's 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 the big prize internationally.
1: Well, it's where you go back to expertise, why foreign policy expertise, uh, epidemiological and disease expertise is important. And, you know, look, my I'll, 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 I'll share my opinion very quickly on the Trump stuff, which is like that's why you need government, not a reality television show. Right. Like living a reality television show is exactly the kind of disaster that's led to trillions in debt, millions of job losses, hundreds of thousands of lives. <laughs> right. So it's like that uh completely agree. So um we have room for one or two more questions, um, because we're we're in the last few minutes. Uh one of the questions we got earlier, um, which I think is a classic kind of authorial question. So hopefully it won't surprise you. You had these 10 rules. What was the eleventh one that was on the that was on the that was on the cutting room floor was it is is there something that you would share in addition to the other ten
0: you know I started to write them down and i and for some reason they gelled at ten and then when i when I got to them I was like that's enough i don't i don't I don't really need to go any further but but i mean what I would say is the, the, you know, if there's an there isn't, it, it, it's sort of the first lesson, but I think I would have made it a bigger lesson, which is we need to think about, uh, the, we, you and I were having this debate before with the cameras went on. Um, I believe I'm an optimist. I think the, you know, I think things, things generally work out. Part of it is my own life experience. Uh, being overly gloomy is not a way to live your life. But we are living as human beings in a way that is taking on a lot of risks between climate change and fires and droughts and hurricanes and these antibiotic resistant viruses and factory farming, which is essentially a kind of petri dish for new viruses. To, we need to step back and ask ourselves, you know, what are the, the more sustainable models of living so that, you know, so that we make sure we can keep this thing. Th- th- this has been a great run for human beings on earth. And we wanna make sure that we're, we're leaving it open for future generations. And I worry about that, and I and you know I talk about that in the book. But I would have probably spun that out a little more. I'd have probably done a, a chapter on climate change.
1: Yeah, climate change, and also the kind of notion of how do we, um, like, how do we think of like part of meaning of life is is what do we give the next generation, right? Yes, like, exactly, at, at, exactly. And, and, and by the way, part of the next generation is like, well, are we are we are we gonna like are we gonna heat up the 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 the, the planet? four degrees and make it like intolerable to live here and like crush society that way. It's like, let's, let's not do that. (laughs) Exactly.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
1: What do you think, um, you know, people should, we only have like 60 seconds for this, but like if they were to think about one thing to say, here is where I should most value like as kind of a centrist or unity or government coming together, what should it be? Should it be like, truth-seeking, learning, expertise, uh, compassion and values for the, you know, like, what What would be a kind of a, some, a couple of very quick, almost like, like summary lines of the government that we should hope for?
0: Look, to take on the big challenges we can't take on together, climate change, pandemics. But the part that I worry the most about is there's really a, a part of America that is forgotten. It's the bottom 20 or 30 percent. They don't write op-eds. They don't give money to politicians. They don't vote. They work really hard and they still make, you know, minimum wage. And those those people really there is like a forgotten America here that I feel like the pandemic has massively exacerbated because those are the people losing their jobs. It's the dishwashers. It's the bellhops at hotels. It's the guys. And I just want to just remind everybody that whatever you're going through, you're going through an inconvenience. Those people are going through the great depression and only government can help. And of course you should do what you can, but most importantly, make sure the government looks after those people because they they really need your help.
1: So Farid clearly demonstrated why, as always, I love talking with you. Um, I have a, uh, script for the uh, for the for the Commonwealth Club that I'm now going to go through, but I wanted to to just share that. Like, I, I hope everyone saw why it's always a delight, a pleasure, and I always learn things. So it's 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 been awesome. Thank you. So our thanks uh, t- uh, to Fareed Zakaria, author of Ten Lessons for a Post-Pandemic World. We encourage you to pick up your copy at your local bookstore or, of course, Amazon, <laughs> Walmart, etc. If you if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club efforts, please visit www.commonwealthclub.org. I'm Reed Hoffman. Thanks so much for joining us today.
0: You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you